Isaiah 54. 53 talked about the Savior. And 54 is going to talk about the restoration of Israel. And basically, uh, one title I saw was the restoration of Israel, the wife of the Lord. So we're going to kind of get into that. And I want to tell you what Spurgeon said about this, this chapter to start with. And it, it's funny how he wrote it. He says, try and suck all the sweetness you can out of this chapter. While we read it, the personal application of a promise to the heart of the Holy Spirit that is, which is wanted. The honey in Jonathan's wood never enlightened his eyes until he dipped the point of his rod into it and tasted it. Try to do the same. This chapter is the wood wherein every brought drop drip with virgin honey. Sip, taste, and be satisfied. And it's a, it's a, it's a short chapter, 17 verses long. But it's a pretty good chapter to get into. It, it, remember, like I said, he had just got through talking about Jesus, talking about the, the sacrifice he's going to make. We talked about that. And, uh, well, last week we didn't talk about nothing because it was a storm. But this week we're, we're back into it. And he starts off, he says, Sing, O barren, that thou didst not bear. Break forth into singing, cry aloud, that thou dost not travail with a child. For more of the children of the desolation, desolate than the children of of the married wife, saith the Lord. So he starts off talking about a woman who has no child. And back then, that was a stigma you did not want to have. And, and you know, uh, if a woman could not have children, she was considered basically almost a waste. And it would be hard for her. So he's telling them to sing. He says in verse 2, he says, Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth for the curtains of thy habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities and the inhabitants. Now, I, I was listening to a couple of different people this week and, and last week. One guy, he was talking about this, the chapters that we're in in Isaiah and like we get into 55 the everlasting covenant and things like that and so he was talking about he said you got to remember what's going on uh the northern kingdoms are are in battle they're fixed to be carried away into captivity the southern kingdom is looking about the same they have enemies on all sides so that we had the promise of the savior coming we we talked about their the idolatry that they suffered from greatly it was a uh it was funny, the, the northern kingdom, the, the reason they suffered from idolatry was basically their kings that they had. Uh, they didn't want the, ch the, the, the children of Israel coming back south and coming to the temple to worship, which is as they were commanded in the Torah. So they decided, well, we're going to change it. We're going to put up places for you to, to worship. And, and so they made places for them to worship and, and uh they just started incorporating anything and everything they could to get the people to not come south because basically it was all about the money. Because if they came south, they'd bring their offerings, they'd bring their tithes to the, the temple, and they didn't want that. So they started doing that. And, and that's one of the reasons why the northern kingdom fell into idolatry. And what was so funny was listening to some of them, and, and I've read it a lot of times, that... The, the northern kingdoms, the kings and stuff, they would hire Levites from the south. Y'all come up and help us lead worship. And if you can incorporate any idol, idols into it, they did. And you think about the idols that we read about in, in the Old Testament. If you remember like Rachel, when she was going to, to coming from her father's house to Laban's house, and she, she stole the family idols. They had idols in their house. They had household idols and things that they worshipped. Anything other than true worship. So it was, it was a polluted worship. And that's what God kept talking to them about. They polluted their worship. And then the southern kingdom was starting to do the same thing. Isn't it amazing how people turn back to the same sin over and over and over so God had told them, basically, he had told them already, you're going to be carried into captivity because of your sin. Now, uh, they didn't want to hear that, but it's going to come true. And then he's going to, he told them the, there would be a Messiah that's going to come, and there's going to be a restoration that's going to come. So he's trying to, to tell them that here. And, and so as he sings this, he says, starts off, and he says, Sing, O barren thou that did not 
bear in ancient, like I said, in ancient Israel, the barren woman carried a, a shame and disgrace. So here, the Lord's likening Israel to a woman like that, but now He says you can sing, and because there 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 are more children of the desolate than there are children of married women is what He says. So basically, He said you're gonna you're gonna bloom, you're gonna blossom. You know, the Babylonian exile and captivity was more oppression for Israel, and it was it was designed to, to bring disgrace and, and humility to them so that they would turn back to him. And so God promises that they will come back out of captivity and out of exile, and when they come back, they're going to grow. And we, we see that still happening today. Uh, Paul quotes... This these verses here in Galatians chapter 4 verse 27 and he says this he says for it is written rejoice <coughs> thou barren that breakest not break forth and cry thou that travailest not for the desolate has many more children than which she has a husband so it, it, it's kind of a he's he's referring to it to the the miraculous birth for those under the new covenant it was different. So he took what Isaiah said and he applied it to the church. And as a reminder of them, uh, think of where you came from. Think of the, your past. You were like a, 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 the shame and disgrace that the woman who couldn't have a child. If, and if we all looked at our past and we look at the things that we've done, truly, we do have that kind of shame and disgrace if we're honest with ourselves. And you think when you got saved, you, you, were, you, you, you washed yourself of that old lifestyle. And so it's a promise there. So as he, he quoted that, that's one of the reasons why, why Paul used it is to remind us of the past that they have. Now, he tells them in verse 2, he says, enlarge the place of your tent. So the, the, the curse and shame of barrenness would also be completely broken. Israel be, it says basically Israel is going to be so fruitful that they'd have to expand their living space, that it wouldn't be enough. Uh, you know, this this is a, this got to be comfort. Okay, you know you're going into exile. God's done told you. He even told you how long you would go. How long were they in exile? Does anybody know? It was 70 years. Isn't it strange? He took them into exile for 70 years. What do you think happened to those who went into exile? They died. It was like wandering in the wilderness of sin. It's the same principle. So that the next generation come out should have a hunger and a desire to come home. So he's promising that. He says, you're going to come back and, and you're going to have to enlarge your place. And, and basically that, that word enlarge also means strengthen. And I was thinking about this. If you can find anybody who will report the news coming out of Israel and it's not the biased news that we have, but the truthful news of what's happening. They're expanding at a record rate because of just what things that are going on. They're, and you look at that nation, that tiny little nation, and where they're sitting, they're basically in a most of it's in a desert climate, but yet they're turning it into an oasis where they have a, a strong uh, consumer trade in things. Now, all the nations around them traded what? Oil. And you ever thought about that? They have all that money. All that money from oil. But yet their nations are, the people are basically dirt poor. But in Israel, the, 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 the gross economy is increasing. Now, I, I have read since COVID, they are having trouble because nations don't want to trade with them. And of course, you know, COVID shut down a lot of trade. So they're having trouble in some places, but they still have a good economy. And their nation is still ex expanding. They're putting out new settlements. And when they build a settlement, basically they're going out to a patch of ground that's desert and they turn it into a city. And, and so it, this, this verse is still continuing today. And he tells them in verse 3 the reason why the tent should be so large. Listen to what he says. For thou will break forth on the right and on the left. Thy seed will take possession of nations, and they will be a desolate cities. Thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles. You know, so you think about this. Uh, they, he tells them that you're going to basically, 
where the heathens lived. You're going to take that place over. And uh, when Christ came and he, he picked his 12 disciples and he sent them forth, we know to start with they stayed in Jerusalem for just a while. But none of the disciples really stayed. They went forth and spread the gospel like they were supposed to. They went to all kind of nations. You know, uh, Thomas went to India. And I don't know about y'all, that'd be a long walk. And so, but they, they, they went and they spread the church. And if you, you track the growth of the church, it's funny how it grew. You know, we see them in, in, in Jerusalem. And they went forth. And, and then what happened in Antioch? That's where we got the name Christian from. And then they spread throughout Turkey. And then it spread throughout Croatia. And it spread throughout Europe. And from Europe, it spread basically everywhere. Came to America. Now it's in the Middle East. Now it's, you know, Christianity continues to spread. So he's saying, so if you look at this and you apply these verses to the church, that for thou shalt break forth on the right and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles. Now, that, that goes a twofold ways. They, they went into the land of the Gentiles, but they also, the, the, God's word is spread everywhere. Yeah, and, you know, in today's society, the, the word of God is still spreading. Uh, I like to follow the, the, the voice of the martyrs. And as they talk about how they, they go into these countries who, you know, basically try to forbid the gospel, but how it still continues to grow. So here's a promise that God made that the church is also included in. But if we look at what happened after the return of the children of Israel back to Israel, when they came back out of captivity, and by the time Paul came along, how many of the cities that Paul went to in Turkey and in the northern areas up there had Jews in them? Isn't that kind of strange that God did that? He brought them home. And then they started to disperse kind of on their own a little bit. And so this promise that they were going to be brought and go into these, these places that they wasn't before, it was fulfilled then, but it's continued to be fulfilled now. Now, he also says to make desolate cities inhabited. And, and so such are the cities that were desolate, destitute, destitute, what is that word? There you go. I'll just give up on it and ask. I mean, really. Uh, you know, they came back to cities that were inhabited by people who did not know about God. And we see how they started teaching. And then we also see how the gospel spread. Isn't it amazing how the gospel can spread to people who's never heard about the Lord? I've often wondered now, which is harder to spread the gospel in? Is the gospel harder to spread here in America or overseas where people's never heard of it? You know, we're getting into that point now where you have to look at it like that. You know, as we take up money for our missionaries, uh, Think about how this is going on as you've got missionaries that go out into the world and they seem to almost have better luck than our churches here in America. Look at our churches here in the Bible Belt. Uh, when was the last time all of them were full? You would think that with the prosperity and the things that we have here in America, that the gospel would be easy to spread, but it's like nobody wants to hear it anymore. And so God's promising this because it was the same way there. A lot of them didn't want to hear the actual word of God. They wanted to hear the good stuff. That's why the first part of Isaiah talks about all the sins. It talks about the idol adultery. You think we had to get all the way over into the, the 50s, on the chat, there's only 66 chapters in Isaiah. And if y'all remember the first, well, basically the middle section, majority of it was about sin. They didn't want to hear about their sin. They wanted to hear about the good stuff. 
So he tells them this. Now look at verses 4 and 6. First he says you're going to be like a desolate woman who has no children. Now he's going to compare them to like a widow who's been rescued. He says, fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither shalt thou be confounded. For thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and thou shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For the maker is thine husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. Thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. So now he's comparing, he says, you're like a woman who can't have children, which we knew that that wasn't a good thing. The, the women who couldn't have children, they were looked down upon. But now he talks about widows and the shame and disgrace that they had. Moiter said this, he said, Shame, disgrace, humiliation represents the three synonymous Hebrew verbs sharing fundamental idea of disappointed hopes, the embarrassment of expecting, even publicly announcing one thing and then repeating and reaping another. So here, why would they, he compare them to widows? Widows were, were, were put down. You've got to remember the time that they lived in. Women were not highly thought of. They were almost considered like property. So if the husband died, women didn't have anything. Unless you had a son to take you in. But if your son was, if you didn't have a son, and all you had was daughters, what would become of the widow? Cast out. Now, for a while, she could survive. You think, depending on how the age she was when her husband passed away. But imagine a, a woman who's a widow, and as she gets up in age, who's there to take care of her? So if you became a widow... What would basically end up being your future? Death. No one would, and basically they wouldn't care. <clears throat> you think about this. In the, in the story of Ruth, when they came back, and you know, she, she ends up with a kinsman redeemer, there was property that belonged to them. But as a woman and a widow, she couldn't do nothing with it. She had to have a husband who had redeemed the land. So she she had nothing. If you know, if Ruth would not have come back with her, imagine how her future would have been. And so this is what he said. He's he said it, it'd be like it, he he's reminding the children of Israel, you're going to go into captivity. Coming back, you could be like that widow who has nothing. But there's a promise of someone who will redeem you. And so he gives them that great promise. He says, for the, the maker is your husband. Though Israel might be regarded, the woman you know, forsaken as a widow, the Lord stand, promises to stand in place of her husband. And that word maker is a shine, and it means to fashion or to make or produce. So he, he's calling himself here the creator is a good title for it. So he's reminded them of who he is, the maker. Because if you look, it's in capital letters. So he's reminding them, he says, all this stuff, all this land, guess who owns it anyway? I do. I created it. So he reminds them of that. And so, you know, it said, I read a bunch of commentaries that said this, that, <clears throat> that a lot of women who's gone through widowhood have, have looked at this verse and claimed the promise here. That when they had nothing else, they, they, they claim that, that the forsaken by their husband or forsaken by this, they, there's that promise that God would be their husband. And you think for some, for, for how many countless generations that was true, that's all they could count on. I, I don't have a, someone who loves me, but God will be my husband. You know, and it's true, God, he is the creator, so he's the supplier. Because he goes into a list, he says, he is the, the, the maker. The Lord of hosts is his name. 
So not only is he the creator of everything, but he is the one who protects everything. He puts that name in as to remind him of the strength and the comfort that God has. He has the ability to, to protect them. He owns everything so he can give them what they need. He can supply their needs and he can protect them from problems. And then he tells them the next thing. He says, the Lord of hosts is named thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So he's reminding them not only that, but he is the redeemer. He, he paid the price for them. Now, this we did not see until when? They came back out of out of, out of captivity, true, but was their price paid for yet? No, it wasn't until it wasn't until till till Jesus come, and that's one of the things we celebrate about Easter is the redemption that Christ brings. He paid the price for us, so he's reminding them the price will be paid. <clears throat> you know, he said the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, so. This Redeemer is going to be God himself. So that's where when we say Jesus is Lord, he's, a, he's told us that he was going to be. And then he goes back and he reminds them, not only is he the Redeemer and is not only is he the maker, but he is the God of the whole earth. Now that's a strange title to tell the children of Israel at this time because there was nobody else hardly who worshipped him. But God's claiming, he says, I am the God of the earth. Now think about all the false gods that are around at that time. How many of the heathens you think would like to hear these five verses here? First he says, I'm going to give you their land. I'm going to give you their, un their inhabited cities. I'm going to give you everything you have. And then I'm going to protect you because not only am I your God, but I'm also their God, but the problem was they just did not recognize him. That's like today. Everybody that that's, they can say they believe in all kind of stuff, guess what? God is still their God. One day the Bible says that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a lot of people out there right now that try their best to say opposite or do opposite than that. How many of you have ever believed something your entire life and then found out the truth? We were, we were talking at work the other day and there was this, this guy, uh, he was telling us this, he said, this uh, young boy came up to this older man and he, 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 this old man had been doing something his entire life this way and he said it was the right way and that boy looked at him and says, that's not right. And he said, that man got mad. He said, a little bit later, he was even madder because he realized it was not right. He says, I've been doing it this way my entire life, but guess what? I've been doing it wrong my entire life. Now, can you imagine on the day when everybody realizes that God is who he says he is? I, I had a, a wonderful message sent to me uh, yesterday. I was at home sitting there and my phone had gone haywire and I'm saying a lot of people's phone went haywire yesterday and so it finally started working and a friend of mine that that I had worked with before sends me this message and he says and he, for some reason when he texts me he always calls me sir he said sir guess what happened to me well, about a month ago, he broke his ankle, and he's been out of work ever since then. I said, what, did you break your other ankle? And he said, no. He said, you'll never guess it. So I quit guessing. There was no point in it. He told me I'd never guess. Then he sent me back. He says, I got saved this Sunday. And that just thrilled my heart. I've known this, this young man since... Basically, since I started working at the depot and, and I know the lifestyle he's lived and, and I, I talked with him and I witnessed to him and I prayed for him. And, and he says, this past week, he said, this month I hit rock bottom. He said, God finally got my attention. He said, I got saved. He says, the greatest decision I ever made. So I'm like, yes. So he said, told me, he says, I want to come see you. So I told him, I said, don't come tomorrow because I won't be there. I'll be at the dentist. 
And he said, I'm going to come down. And he said, I just want to talk to you. And I got to think, I said, now, here's this guy who his lifestyle. And he would tell me, he would tell me, I know, I know about God. I know about him. I went to church. He'd come up with all kinds of stuff when he was young. But he finally got saved. Amen. That, that's, that, I love to hear stories like that because it reminds you that, that there, everybody, there's, there's always hope. Keep praying, keep, keep on praying. Cause that, 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 like I said, that made my day. And I said, man, that's awesome. And, and I know that now he knows who the Lord is. So he, he can't be like these who deny him. Now we, we look at verse six and, and he says this, he says, for the Lord has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth. When thou was re refused, saith the Lord. So this is designed to, to confirm and illustrate the sentiment of the previous verses. God said there would be a husband to his people. Here he says that although he had for a time basically almost looked like he forsaken. How many of you have all in your life thinking God's forgotten me? And so this was a promise. He's like, and I, I guess the children of Israel could say that because they go into captivity because of their idolatry. They go into captivity because of the sin. And that would be hard. And, and it would appear that God forsake them. Think about this. If, if we were invaded and they came and they started taking us and sending us different places, how many of us would be like, like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and stand true when the time came? Or how many of us would be like all the rest of the children of Israel that when the music came and they bowed down to worship? See, it, it, it's this promise that God says, I, it, you know, it was like he abandoned, but there was some that didn't abandon him. So it's a reminder that even though it seems he's forsaken them, that he still loves them and he will come to them and rescue them. Now in verses 7 and 8, he's going to explain his restoration of Israel. Listen to what he says. He says, for a small moment, I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. And a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. So for a small moment I have forsaken thee. And did God really forsaken the children of Israel? Now it might be like he says, he, he, I think base, a better way to have worded this is that he recognizes that they felt like you have forsaken us. You, but go back and as we go back and look at what he did, remember how the army was at the gates and he destroyed the army, but yet what did Israel do? Did they go out, celebrate, praise the Lord? No, they kept on doing what they had been doing. So it, it's, it's like God says, hey, I, I've never left you. He could have allowed the southern kingdom to be carried off into captivity like the northern kingdoms and really never completely return. You think the northern kingdom, some of them returned, but yet what did they do when they returned? Same thing as always doing. Not only that, but they polluted themselves and they became the Samaritans. What were the Samaritans? Anybody know right off? It was Jews who married Gentiles and kind of adopted their ways. That's why in Jesus' time, Samaria, if you were a good Jew, if you had to walk to Galilee, you would go miles out of your way through harsher climate and trails just to avoid those heathens, the Samaritans. So they could have been like that. But when God brought them back, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, think about that. He sent Ezra 
back with the promise and the help of the, the, the king of Persia to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer of the Persian king, came back and rebuilt the walls with the blessing and the materials from the one who was holding them captive. See how when God blesses them, he really blesses them. And you think about something. If you would have been Nehemiah, you were the king's cupbearer, that meant you had the best job you possibly have. It did have one bad thing. If, you, uh, if somebody tried to kill the king and poison him, your career would be cut short. But besides that, because of what you did, you think about the food you had. That's what I like. I said, that'd be an awesome job to have. I get to try a little bit of everything. I'm set up for it now. <laughs> and so here you, you've got that. And I guarantee you, it said that the cupbearers lived in royal residence. They were taken care of. But yet God laid upon his heart to lead that, to approach the king, to tell him that, that he had a problem. He wanted to go home to rebuild the walls. And the, and the king said, you can go, but you've got to return. So they went and they did it. And God miraculously, you think... At the if, if you read it and you read the time period it took them to rebuild the gates and the walls with enemy at the gates ready to attack you, harassing you, they did it so quickly that there was only one way it could have been done and that's by the hand of God. I mean, you think about something. How long did it take them to build that road going from friendship to the exchange? Yeah. How long did it take them to get the bypass done? I mean, I, I, that's been 30 years, I think, they finally got it done. And they completed the city of Jerusalem very quickly. So we see that God blesses them, and it's a promise that he would restore them. He said, for a mere moment, I allowed you to feel like you had been forsaken. But with great mercies, I will gather thee. Now, the forsaken is in the present tense here as this is what's but we read it in English and it says the forsaken but the words there are in the present tense and the great mercies that's written about it in verse 7 he said for a moment I've forsaken thee but with great mercies will I gather thee that great mercies is a future tense so he started bringing them back, but those mercies didn't just start and stop when they came back. It's a mercy that continues to be applied. It is written as a future tense that they is a continuation. The word mercies here is racham, and it's plural. It also means the womb. So it's a picture of compassion that's shown to like a pregnant woman. And ladies, y'all know that been pregnant when you were pregnant. Isn't it amazing? People opened the doors for you. They would get out of the way. But the day you had that child, what happens? Where'd they go? Yeah, the, these people hold the door open, was pulling shut quickly behind themselves. So it's a promise of a mercy that's given to somebody who isn't deserving of it. So, so God gives us this picture of this mercy that continues on. Because everybody looks at a pregnant woman and says, oh, she's pregnant, oh, take care of her. And so this is the picture that God's giving for the children of Israel. He said, I'm going to give you this in the future. So it starts when he brings them back. Now, if we look at their history, we can almost say, well, God, did you... Not do that because the poor Jewish people's history is not really just one of roses and, and, and happy times, is it? That's like the churches. If we look at this verse and we claim this verse is being written to the church where God says, I'm going to gather you. And in a way, that harvest is still going and on go. And he says, I'm going to give you great mercies. When you got saved, have you had great mercies? Yes, you have, but have you always 
received nothing but mercy? I mean, when you got saved, it became harder. Isn't that amazing? God protects us. He watches over us. He treats us. He gives us these mercies. And he pours his blessings out on us constantly. But I still go back to that others. Sometimes I feel like you have forsaken me, but then I realize it's not that he's forsaken me. I have forsaken him. And that's kind of the picture he's trying to paint here. And, and as he, he promises this. And let me get on my other soapbox or I kill it. If we're going to talk about how these words here, this great mercy is a picture of a woman who has a child. That shows you why abortion is so wrong because it goes against God's promise. Now remember he told Eve, you're going to have children, but you're going to, it's, it's going to be painful. But nowhere in there did he say destroy the child. You know, it goes against the compassion and the love that God shows here using these words. And so when we see that, we realize that's why it's so wrong. It is against the word of God. Now, he, he says there, he says, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you. So the contrast between the moment of feeling forsaken and the everlasting nature of kindness to, to come is a picture here. You know, when we feel tired <coughs> forsaken, how long does that usually last? Sometimes it seems like it lasts forever, but in a way it's just a moment. Because God comes. You know, he, he promises his things. He makes these things. Now, he tells us, you know, here, here's one thing that some people have a hard time understanding. God's mercy and compassion, he says he's going to pour on us and give us. But is there a condition to it? You obey. What's the obey part that you have to do to receive this compassion and mercy? Pray. Pray. And ask for it. Bring your problems to them. You know, some people, the, the, the ones who preach the gospel of prosperity miss the truth because all they want to tell you is if you, you, you're, you're doing this and God's going to pour your blessings out, but he, they don't remind them that it's up to you and you're going to have problems, you're going to feel forsaken. Because we all do what? We all sin and backslide. And I don't know about y'all, I think that's why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I think the reason why he put it like that, because it's a hard job staying where you need to be. It's a hard job to look at yourself and see the truth and say, man, I, I'm not the one who's forsaken. God's not the one who's forsaken. I am. <clears throat> oh yeah that's like you take a, a kid a little you take Genesis to anywhere I'll give you that much every time she'll hold on to your hand and then she sees a squirrel or a butterfly and she's off to the races that little kick and run you know so you gotta hold on to her and hold on hard Verses 9 through 10 is a promise that God makes. He says, For as is the waters of Noah unto me, for I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that has mercy on thee. So here he's giving them a promise that they ought to be able to look at. The promise of what God told Noah. What did God tell Noah when he came off the ark? That he would never do that again, never flood the earth again. And, and you know, uh, 
he gave us a constant reminder of that with rainbows. It's a reminder of it would never do his anger. He says, my anger is going to recede. He said in the mountains shall depart, but my kindness shall not depart. The flood waters receded and the mountains do not, but the mountains shall depart and the hills shall be removed. But the kindness of the Lord will never depart. Now, that's an, another, it's a present and a future promise. Because you've got to think of all the promises that God made to the children of Israel. Now, at this time, with the enemies at the gate, it seems like utter destruction. The kingdom's going to be destroyed. They're going to be carried off into captivity. God promised that, that David's lineage would always be on the throne. But when the exile comes, there's never really a throne put back. But God's promise is still there. Jesus will be the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. That's what the millennial reign is for. is to fulfill the promises that God made to the children of Israel. Aren't you glad, though, that those promises extend to us? that we get to experience that too. It's not because we're Jewish, right? It's because we've been adopted into the family. We have an advocate with Jesus Christ. So this is a promise that he says, and he says his covenant of peace is basically more sure than anything that there is. Now, the covenant of peace, again, a covenant requires how many people? At least two. Now, if one breaks the covenant, does that mean the other one is free of the covenant? No, the covenant's still binding the one who keeps the covenant is the Lord. He offered them peace. He said, I will give you peace. I will be your protector. But you've got to be willing and obedient to me. So since they never really have been a good history of being willing and obedient to him, he keeps his promise, but that's like us today. Do we always keep our promise? No, we, we, we sin horribly at it. Now 11 through 17, the last part here, are the promises of prosperity, peace, and protection. So listen to what it says. He says, O thou afflicted, tossed and tempestous and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires. I will make thy will widows, uh, window, excuse me, window, will, window, uh, windows of agates, and thy gates of carbuncles, and all thy borders of pleasant stones. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shall thou be established, and thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror it shall not come unto thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that billows the coals of the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. I have created the waster to destroy. And here's one verse we all know. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment shall thou condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. So he starts off in verse 11 talking about the afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comfort. So basically we know that God cares about those who are afflicted. And he cares about the one who are going through problems. The ones who are not comforted. You know, and so it, we see that throughout his word. He cares for those who, who, who hurt. 
And so that's what he started off. He says, he's reminding him of that. He says, behold. And then he goes, behold, I will lay at thy stones with fair colors, thy foundations with sapphires and, and things. The, the, the picture is how he's going to lavish riches upon the hurting and the afflicted. <coughs> when someone feels afflicted and tossed and going through problems, they also kind of feel poor. And no matter how much money they have in the bank it's like it's not enough because you think can money buy happiness you know it, it does help sometimes it seems but it it's not the thing that brings us joy it can bring happiness for a little bit but not true joy so god basically he's promising to make them truly rich and, and so he gives these, these these pictures that he's talking about uh Something that you see when he talks about the windows, basically another word for that is uh, pinnacles or, or towers that could be seen. So here he, he's giving a, a picture of something that they can, they can understand, the, the carbuncle, which is precious stones. Now, if we look at these stones and everything, when will this come to pass? Ha, has God taken and rebuild Jerusalem with all these wonderful stones and riches. You know, when they came back, they built the, the, the building, the, the gates out of the old rocks that were there. I, I was watching this thing today that if you go to Jerusalem now, we know that Jerusalem's walls have been tore down and rebuilt and tore down and rebuilt and tore down and rebuilt. They say that you can walk through the old city and look at this, the, the walls there and where the, uh, the last one that did it was Suleiman the Great, who was a Muslim, when he's the last one that rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. They threw the rocks together in places, and you'll see where they don't quite fit right. You'll see some that have inscriptions of Roman inscriptions that are upside down. It's just where they grabbed rocks and put them there. So Jerusalem is not this beautiful, wonderful city. It kind of, in places, looks run down. So this has not been fulfilled yet. We know when will this city look like this? The New Jerusalem. Not even the one during the millennial reign, but after the millennial reign, when sin's completely abolished and we live with the Lord forever. So then we'll have that beauty in all these things that's here. It's a promise to come. It's a promise that we can hope for and we are part of. And so that when you get down to the, the part where he talks about, he's, he, he gets in there and he talks about the children. He says, all the children shall be taught of the Lord and great peace shall be your kids. So you think about this. Is that happening today? Uh, most kids today don't know anything about the Bible. I mean, absolutely nothing. It, it, it's bad. It's to the point where it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's downright shameful. But here he says that's going to happen. And, and he says, and your, your righteousness shall be established. Now, if we look at that last verse, and he, he tells us this, he says, well, let's back up. He, he created a blacksmith, basically, who's going to give us the, the power to protect and every tongue Rise against be condemned. Now he says, No weapons formed against us shall prosper. You know, several, sometimes the, the Lord takes the weapon out of the hand of the enemy. And sometimes he takes it out of the hand of the servant, too. But it, it's a reminder that basically, as his children, there's nothing that can really harm us. It might seem like it can. Does. Someone who is given the sentence of terminal cancer, even though the cancer is horrible, is that the end of everything when they take their final breath here? No. Yeah, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. So it's, it's no weapon if you think about that. So really, it, we're invincible until the Lord calls us home. 
So he says that now. He says, every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, <coughs> thou shalt condemn. Now, one of the most painful things in the world is the tongue, isn't it? It, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it, as the Bible says, it's sharper than any weapon. You know, we can bear a blow sometimes, but sometimes an insult can get you worse than anything. So there's great power in it. And Spurgeon said this, he says, yet we can trust the Lord's triumph. More accusers and more acquittals and more slander, the more the honors so the enemy may slander us as much as he pleases. And it's true. You think about now how Christians are looked upon. Uh, the guy who, who, from the bakery, he's in court again this week defending himself and his, his belief. He came out of it once, but somebody else has come up against him. And that's what we live with. Now, the Bible, now we, we, we hold to that promise that every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment shall thou condemn. And we know that God does that. We've seen it. But sometimes we're like, Lord, we don't see it all the time. How come these weapons are coming against us? How come these slanderous words? But in the long run, who wins? Yeah. Exactly. So it, it's a reminder of, of all this is, and how this ends. It, it, it's a... I like what one guy said. He said, it's not a blanket promise to any churchgoer, as a lot of people try to hold on to. It's a promise to, if you read it, this is the heritage of who? The servants of the Lord, to his people. To be a servant means that he is your Lord. So it's not just a promise and, and, and so many people claim this, but the question you have to ask, is he your Lord? And the majority of them will say, well, I hope so. All right, let's do prayer.